And here we are again at the beginning of the Lenten season. Did that grab your attention? Lent? Ash Wednesday is still three weeks away, right? Um, in some ways, the Jessima Sundays are the beginning of the Lenten season, at least in some way of looking at it. Um, <clears throat> yet, as far as I can tell in my mad research, uh, it's appropriate to, eat, appropriate to eat king cake until Shrove Tuesday. Or Mardi Gras, or Carnival, or, and I just did a little bit of research looking at Carnival around the world. That's where I got that German bit. And uh, you need to do that. It's, it's, it's a little crazy. Yes, I know. It's, uh, what are the big ones? Rio de Janeiro is considered like the Carnival of Carnivals. But I think Venice does a pretty big one. And of course, New Orleans, and trust me, I lived in Louisiana, you don't want to be anywhere near New Orleans on Shrove Tuesday. Um, In different parts of the ancient church, Lent was timed a little bit differently. There was a period of trying to figure out what's going to work best, how are we going to do this. It had mostly to do, as far as I can tell, with the number of fast days. Forty days of fasting was the rule, but in some regions, the bishops declared Sundays, Thursdays, and Saturdays as non-fast days. Fasting was not permitted on these days, and therefore to have 40 fast days or a 40-day fast before Easter, one needed to start at Septuagesima. Of course, in other places, the fast days differed, and so Sexagesima or Quinquagesima, Quinquagesima might be chosen. So our tradition now still includes these earlier markings of the Lenten fast, or the transition into Lent, if you will. And what is more, the readings push us towards Lent and the Lenten disciplines. Um, If you go to the Eastern Church and look at their practice, I don't know the details because I'm not an Eastern Orthodox Christian, but they do have um, Cheese Sunday and I forget all the other names. Um, Some of you guys can help out some of the others with those names, but it's the last day to eat cheese or dairy, the last day to eat this. And that all happens, I think now, basically, except to adjustment moving forward for us. So similar sorts of things happened in other parts of the church and they sort of more or less got balance into east and west and so the west is pretty pretty uniform in my uh experience in the kind of fasting days etc um we have in our time been given a great tradition that includes this as i was talking earlier this in between time from the joys and jubilation of christmas and epiphany to the deeply sorrowful tone of lent and then holy week So you can see this progression from celebration of the Incarnation, 12 days, and then um, Epiphany and continued celebration. And as we move through Epiphany, then we hit the pre-Lent and we start to change tone and direction. And then we hit Lent, and, and, and generally Lent has a bit of a sorrowful tone to it. It doesn't mean that we're not rejoicing. But then, then Lent leads us to Passion Tide, two weeks before, and then Passion Tide helps prepare us for Holy Week, and then Holy Week helps prepare us for um, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then, of course, Easter Sunday. Um, so the church has been thoughtful about this. I, you know, they've had some time to do it. Uh, and I think what we've inherited is very, very helpful. So 
So we go from the feasting and the partying of the former to the fasting and the self-discipline of the latter so that we might rightly feast and party again. For some of us, those who find Lent an emotionally trying time, and I do know people that find it particularly trying, as perhaps maybe it should be, maybe most of us should find it more trying, um, this transitional period can be very helpful. Please note as we move through this pre-Lenten season that the Epistle and Gospel themes clearly reflect Christian self-discipline and the virtues extolled and commanded, or commended rather, also seem to match up quite nicely with the ancient classification of virtues by the Greeks and particularly Aristotle. And perhaps our patristic fathers um, wanted to show Christian application for this heathen stuff that came before. Um, N.T. Wright makes an argument that all of the classical virtue language gets are, are made new, are transformed in Christ Jesus, in his incarnation, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so um, the way that the virtues line up in these next three weeks, um, the, the cardinal virtues, the, the classical ones, show up in the first couple of weeks particularly, and the the virtue which Jesus brings to the table, which transforms all the cardinal virtues, shows up in the final uh, in Quinquagesima Sunday. And uh, the epistle lesson is 1 Corinthians 13. Love, the great virtue. For Septuagesima, the epistle of the Christian strife for the mastery represents tempera, te, temperatia, or temperance. And the gospel of the labors and the penny a day, justice, just. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Latin, uh, justice. Let us take a closer look at that epistle lesson today. Perhaps we could title this section Christian Effort. The Christian life involves, or rather demands, a sustained and continuous and concentrated effort. St. Paul gives us two pictures of this life, two athletic metaphors. The first one says that the Christian life is like a race, and those competing in the race are running for a prize, but a prize compared with which all earthly prizes fade and perish. The goal we have as Christian runners is glory, and that goal is set forth to us fittingly as a crown. As one commentator puts it, the Christian runs with the crown ever before him. He runs to win, and as if one alone could receive the prize and intending to be that one. Do you remember listening to your dad when you were running competitive foot races in, you know, as a six-year-old or seven-year-old? No, stop looking behind. You don't care where those guys are. Just keep running. Although our first thought with this imagery of St. Paul's is very likely to be the image of a sprinter racing with all his might towards the finish line, which was the example I gave you, let me remind you that this race takes a lifetime to complete. We must make a continuous effort in this race unless we are content to run with uncertainty, starting and stopping taking a bit of time off here and there, getting serious for a season, 
and then not so serious. Uh, if something is coming to mind, particularly to my middle school students, um, it would probably be the race that the hare would run against the tortoise. But I would commend you to the tortoise. The tortoise runs the race St. Paul is talking about, steady and firm and continuous, one foot in front of the other, step by step, slow perhaps, but moving forward all the time. My pastor growing up had a great metaphor that I've shared with you before, but let me remind you of it. He talks about a quarter horse running a race and how gorgeous this horse is and the muscles ripple. And he says, but that's not really what it looks like to be a Christian. Sorry. <laughs> you know, all of us high schoolers would go, oh, shoot. He says, instead, the farmer who takes out the old plow horse, saggy, the back kind of, you know, sways in the middle, hooks him up to the plow. Plow, house, plow horse couldn't run 20 feet, much less a quarter mile. And it would probably kill him. But the plow horse hooked up to the plow continues every day doing his job one foot in front of the other. And unfortunately, perhaps for our egos and our vanity, the plow horse is the horse that God is calling us to be. Father Melville Scott says that this race is not to the swift, but to the enduring and demands in the runner the same qualities possessed by the winners of all long races, a self-denial and every indulgence that might lessen the chance of victory, a wise and steady calmness, a shrinking from no exertion, but above all, a steady perseverance to the end. No bodily race is like this for difficulty. Let the spiritual runner learn from the bodily to run wisely, not wildly. Not as certain of victory, but making victory certain. St. Paul says, St. Paul not only says, I run, but also I fight. The second metaphor. Perhaps the most obvious classical athletic contest St. Paul is talking about here is wrestling. Perhaps boxing. It's hard to tell the difference between the two if you read about them in the classical world. Wrestling in the classical world looks like a mix of our wrestling and boxing. It was a fairly savage contest, and it was not terribly unusual to have a funeral following a match. It happened quite often. If we are racing towards glory every day, getting closer and closer, more and more holy as we pursue God, as we pursue union with Christ then we are wrestling to defeat our opponent, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In short, we wrestle against sin. With fighting in view, we are not concerned so much about the length of the bout, but the intensity. Wrestling and fighting is all about the moment, isn't it? And in this moment, as we encounter our own battles with sin, we must fight desperately with strong determination, with straining effort and concentrated exertion, watching for the moment when our opponent lets down his guard and opens himself for the killing blow, which may have happened in the athletic contest in history, but in some sense, St. Paul tells us, needs to happen in our contest, in our wrestling matches. Of course, many of those who have taken up fencing at St. Andrews, uh, at the academy anyways, can relate this image to that sport. Not quite refined fencing was in 
Paul's day to the athletic competition it is today, or doubtless the apostle would have been tempted to use fencing for the illustration, right? In fencing, we are not concerned about what will happen hours from now, nor even ten minutes from now. The idea is that the fencer had better have everything working in the moment, now, not later. And let me tell you, when one of our fencers uh, is evenly matched with an opponent in a contest, the match itself can take 10, 15 minutes with a few rests here and there. And by the end, they're just ready to fall down. It's exhausting. And they have to keep their guard up and keep looking for the opening at those moments. The fencer that is concerned about later will be a dead fencer. Or at least one who is sitting on the sidelines watching those who did not let up and watched for the chance to dispatch their opponents. We are called to make our blows count, not as one who beats the air. We are not called to look like a fighter, to be flashy and showy, but to actually get to the conflict and make every effort, every punch count. Not to show the attitude, but to live the attitude, the reality, sin bruised, Satan beaten off, and our besetting sins vanquished. Thus, we see that detailed self-examination is in order for us. It is a good thing that Lent is coming up. Of course, we are not to wait for Lent for this kind of self-examination of our hearts, our minds, our souls. But the Lenten season helps remind us of the need and provides a time and space once a year for very serious self-examination of our race and our fight. Have we let up? We got our guard down. How are we doing? We must examine our efforts and holiness and find ways to do better. We must examine our sins and confess them, not just generally, but specifically. List them, know them, confess them, weep over your failures, and see God's grace in your lives as He forgives them, puts you on your feet, and tells you to get back in the ring. Ring. Use the spiritual disciplines given us to disciple your body and have mastery over it. Use them to discipline your heart and soul and mind and have mastery over your whole being as you submit yourself, body and soul, to the leading of the Holy Ghost. St. Paul's attitude is wise. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Amen.